from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this cloudy afternoon. I hope you're doing well. We have a packed show for you today, so let's get started. First up, the South Dakota House has just passed HB 1057, a groundbreaking bill designed to protect adolescent children under the age of 16 from receiving hormone treatment, puberty blockers, and gender confirmation surgery. Now, this was motivated in part by the stories like that of James Younger in Texas and others who regret their transition decisions. The bill provides that unauthorized treatments be classified as a Class 1 misdemeanor. I'll have the sponsor of the bill, Representative Fred Deutsch, from South Dakota's 4th Congressional District, to discuss. In our second segment, American companies seem to be making as much political noise as they do profits lately. But do consumers find it appealing? A national survey released recently by Plus Communications and GS Strategy Group finds that heading into a divisive presidential election year, customers want businesses to focus on taking care of their employees and not on politically motivated social campaigns. I'll have Brian Walsh of Plus Communications on to break down the data. At the bottom of the hour, a first-grade class at Maurice Sendak Community School, a public school in Brooklyn, New York, will host a Drag Queen Story Hour for its students on February 24th. Not the first time it has done so, by the way. So, for parents who believed that Drag Queen Story Hours were just for libraries, I am here to tell you the battle is at our door. I will have Executive Director of New York's Family Research Foundation, Jason McGuire, on to discuss this problematic new development. And in our last block, the pro-life movement in America is gaining traction. We are only six days removed from the annual March for Life, and we don't need to look any further than the spate of pro-life bills popping up coast to coast. Elected officials appear to finally be taking note of how important the issue of life is to U.S. voters. And I'll have FRC's Travis Weber and Matt Carpenter on to discuss these bills, as well as FRC's resources you can use to help navigate pro-life legislative developments. Now, as a reminder, follow Tony on Twitter, if you care to, at T. Perkins and me, at Sarah P. Perry. And let me say, go to our podcast. We have a number of resources that are related to today's program, TonyPerkins.com. You can also find the show on any one of your podcast programs. And you'll find action steps, information, and some of the materials we'll be discussing today on Washington Watch. Well, it's the first of its kind in the country. The South Dakota House has passed a bill to protect children from transgender surgery and puberty blockers. Concern on the issue has bloomed after stories surfaced of parents transitioning their children or children, minors, taking it upon themselves to make life-changing decisions about their bodies. Joining me now to talk about this in just a minute will be the author of the bill that recently passed, Representative Fred Deutsch, who serves on South Dakota's 4th Congressional District. But before we get there, let me encourage you at TonyPerkins.com that the next procedural step in this bill 
is to send it to the South Dakota Senate. After that, should it be passed, it will go to Governor Christy Nome's desk for ratification and signature. We have a link at TonyPerkins.com where you can go and you can find an opportunity to submit comments to Governor Nome so that she's aware of how you feel about an important piece of legislation like this. Now, the bill is entitled the Vulnerable Children Protection Act, which is very common sense titling for a bill that's designed specifically to prohibit medical personnel from giving life-altering gender-bending treatments. It's House Bill 1057, and it passed in the House by a margin of two to one. Now, we understand that children with gender dysphoria are struggling, but in the sense that you would not give a knife to someone with suicidal ideations or amputate a leg for someone with body dissociative disorder, these children are being altered in such a way that they are subjected to life-altering, long-lasting consequences. So it's our desire here at the Family Research Council to work in partnership with legislators that we see at the state level, like Representative Deutsch, who's done such excellent work in finding the stories of individuals who regret their transition, children who were transitioned by their parents who were not old enough to express consent, ordinary boys and girls who are struggling in one way or another with their bodies, And it's okay for adults to make decisions about their own personal care, but subjecting children to these interventions is hurtful, according to Representative Deutsch, and his bill is specifically about protecting children. A few facts about gender ideology and biology. Every human being possesses a genetic code that determines their sex, and to date, no treatment can change a genetic composition of any one individual. Children's brains, their decision-making abilities are still developing. States have long treated adolescents as dependents on their parents and guardians. In no other circumstance can a child make a medical decision. My daughter wants to take a Tylenol at school for a headache, and I immediately get a phone call from the school nurse. So common sense legislation like this, sponsored by Representative Fred Deutsch, is in our estimation and in the estimation of so many others, as is evidenced by the two-to-one passage rate in the South Dakota House, not only necessary, but protective of these vulnerable kids. We seem to be having a bit of trouble getting Representative Deutsch on the phone, so I have with me our studied, our erudite Vice President for Public Policy and Government Affairs, Travis Weber, who has been working closely in this environment with not only this particular piece of legislation, but also with other opportunities, other coalition efforts to protect biology and to protect minor children. Above the age of 18... You can take whatever actions you'd like in your own life, with your own body, but these are minor children, children high school and younger that we're talking about. So, Travis, thank you for joining me on short notice. Thank you. Um, Let's talk a little bit about this bill. I was talking a little bit earlier procedurally. This is headed next to the Senate and then to Governor Nome's desk for signature, and we provided that portal so that you can make your comments known on this particular bill. 
But do we anticipate, based on the composition of the House or the blowback that we're getting from the left, that there's going to be any kind of a hiccup in getting this passage in the Senate in South Dakota? Um, Sarah, I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, obviously, what happens. I, I feel confident about the movement on this bill right now. Uh, I think the leaders of South Dakota are aware that this is a, a necessary step to protect children against these uh, these procedures, um, uh, some of them irreversible procedures with life-altering consequences that uh, we, we don't even have. We don't have good studies, good academic literature uh, uh, indicating how uh, we are affected long-term by these procedures. So now we're letting children... Children, um, uh, go and get them. It doesn't make sense. I think, um, you know, based on the vote in the House where, uh, we had a, a, a successful vote yesterday, uh, by, by a margin of 46 to 23, this bill passed. It's going to go to the Senate now. I think we're in a good spot. I, I, I feel like the majority of the Senate, um, and even deep down the governor knows that this is the right thing to do. Uh, the right thing to do to protect the children in South Dakota, because we're hearing from medical experts or endocrinologists, doctors, others who are describing the problems with these treatments being uh, unapproved treatments being performed on minors. We're hearing from moms who, who've had children get swept up in this and harmed. Um, we, we know the stories of those adults who regret undergoing these procedures and treatments. And that's a growing phenomenon. We hear more and more about individuals who are regretting transitioning. A, a growing phenomenon. We're having their stories come out. And when you have someone show up and testify and say, look, this is what happened to me and I regret it, that's powerful. And and so we, we have all this feeding into the the, um, the effort in South Dakota in terms of it's in the public discussion. People are aware of it. I think we just need to pay attention to the facts, uh, the facts being that we don't know the outcomes of these treatments, very experimental, and uh, children should, shouldn't should be, be swept up in them. We should be let let adolescents um, go through that period of their lives. Uh, as as we had, you know, floor speeches yesterday and, and the whip, uh, House Whip John Hansen proclaiming on the floor that uh, let's just let the kids grow up. Puberty is not the disease, he said. In 85% of the cases, it's the cure. Yeah. Perfect encapsulation of what we need to be focusing on here. Absolutely. 85% of these kids will go through puberty, and everybody feels strange about their development, and they feel awkward and out of sync with their own bodies, and that is a natural part of growing up. At 85% of these kids, you leave them alone, they will ultimately become aligned with their biological sex. And what we know from Representative Deutsch, what he said in other publications, is the fact that this was a homegrown effort, and what impacted him was stories of transition regret. Those individuals who had gone through the process as younger adults, some minors in some cases, who had said, what have I done with my life? And so he's been working on this because he was so impacted by these personal stories. So as far as I'm concerned, the left's persistent and vitriolic rhetoric on the fact that it's transphobic to prevent a child from being altered, life altered in any way, I find completely uncompelling and, and frankly a little disgusting. As the parent of three minor children, this is a perfectly common sense piece of legislation for me. Very much so. You know, talking about regret, we have the stories of, of Walt Heyer, example, and others who are now testifying to being swept up in this and, and regretting lost years of their lives. We mentioned the percentage who make it through this period of adolescence. We found that a number of studies showing that up to 97.8% of children who are gender nonconforming or experience distress 
at identifying with their biological sex eventually come to identify with their biological sex in adolescence or adulthood. So we know kids walk through this, this period of their lives based on the stats. We have the stats that are on our side. I think everyone should take a look at them as they look at this issue. So has Governor Nome indicated one way or the other what she's going to do when this gets to her desk? Governor Nome has, has not indicated one way or the other right now. Um, I, I, think, I think she'll recognize um, the right thing to do uh, is, is, is by backing this bill, supporting and protecting the kids, of the children of South Dakota from, from these procedures with unknown consequences. Um, and uh, we really uh, want her, call upon her to do that and, and, and support this bill. And again, for our listeners, TonyPerkins.com, we have a link to the portal for South Dakota that will take you strictly and directly to the governor's office where you can make your voice be heard on a piece of legislation like this. As we are moving forward, we know that there are not other bills like this. So really, South Dakota is the tip of the spear on this. This is an important vote. And, um, you know, this is a, a mark, uh, you know, it's, it's an indicator for the nation on this issue. Um, it's going to tell us whether states are going to stand up and protect kids or or leave them by the wayside. Travis Weber, thanks for being with us, and I get to talk to you later today. Thank you. Our VP of Public Policy and Government Affairs. Coming up next, do you want your corporation to do its business, make a profit, or get involved in your business? Well, we have a study out that will give you the answer coming up next on Washington Watch. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. We all need to be lectured sometimes. 
Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Thursday afternoon. TonyPerkins.com for lots of information there related to all of the segments that you'll be hearing about today. Well, if you've noticed that corporate America seems to be particularly woke here lately, you are not the only one. They are making as much political noise as they are profits. But do customers find this appealing about their companies? A national survey released recently by Plus Communications and GS Strategy Group finds that heading into a divisive presidential election year, customers want businesses to focus on taking care of their employees and not on politically motivated social campaigns. So joining me now to discuss this is Plus Communications managing partner, Brian Walsh, who's worked in D.C. for over 20 years and has provided media relations to Fortune 500 companies across the world. Welcome to the program, Brian. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the parameters of the study. First of all, what prompted you to conduct a study like this? Well, look, what we're seeing increasingly, particularly in an election year, is companies are getting pulled on both sides, right? And and increasingly, some companies are deciding that they need to wade into uh, some of the more politically divisive social or political campaigns. Um, so we decided to do a survey and look at see what, what actually Americans think about all this. And right. what we found is what we found is, is is increasingly look. I mean, especially in this you know twenty four seven news cycle world where people are bombarded left and right on politics, they don't necessarily want to hear that from where they're you know going grocery shopping or shopping for school clothes. <laughs> you know, they they want to just sort of be left alone. You know, in some areas and and what what they also care more about is comp are companies who are investing in their employees and contributing to a positive quality of life uh, for people. Uh, so that you know they're saying, look, stay away from the politics. We get enough of that, uh, uh, you know, on TV and on the radio. Uh, just deliver a high quality product. Uh, give us good customer service. Give us good customer service. And, you know, let's leave the political stances to others. Where do you think a trend like this to insert a corporation into partisan politics comes from? Is this just sort of the law of agency? You have directors, officers, CEOs who have a particular political perspective, and they decide that they are going to use the 800-pound gorilla and exact their particular social agenda. Or is there something else at work? Look, I think I think it depends. I mean, it seems like everything's being politicized these days. But you know, you looked actually just today there was a story uh, out of Hollywood that Rosie O'Donnell and other um, Hollywood celebrities are going after the studios and specifically companies like Comcast and and AT and T who own some of the studios for for donating money um, to politicians who um, support um, you know. Uh, that are backed by the NRA. Now, ignoring the fact that most of these companies give equally <laughs> to Republicans and Democrats, you know, they're, you know, you're seeing these Hollywood celebrities try to put public pressure, uh, on companies to basically take a political position. Uh, you know, our survey research shows they should, they shouldn't take the bait on that. Uh, they should just focus on, you know, on delivering for their customers and importantly delivering for their employees. You look at a company like Delta last month, they gave, they gave back 1.6 billion dollars in 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 bonuses back to their employees. A really smart thing to do uh, right. in this day and age. 
Yeah, it really was a great story and compelling. I remember watching that with my son on the news, and he said, I guess I need to get a job with Delta. So I think there's... Well, I mean, it does, yeah. There's an expressive balance here, and I really liked this about the structure of the study that sort of evidenced not only are 81 percent of Americans sick of political correctness and in every aspect of our lives, I think we probably feel this way, but especially as concerns the dollars, our hard earned dollars at work. I think also it demonstrated that there really is sort of a very healthy interplay between the desire to take care of customers, take care of of employees and to make a profit. And I was very encouraged by the fact that your data indicated that there's a nice balance here of everything except making a political statement. Exactly. Exactly. Look, in our survey, we found, I mean, the good news for the business community is that Americans, by a three-to-one margin, uh, favor capitalism over socialism. They believe that businesses are better suited than Congress to address challenges, but they're also looking to businesses to um, help support a better economic future for everyone. I mean, what we did see in our survey research is that you know, look, and we, and we see this in the economy right now. I mean, the, the economy broadly is doing fairly well, but customers and Americans are very concerned about their economic future. Uh, by a 58% to 31% margin, uh, uh, respondents said that they're more concerned about the future uh, than they are now. And so I think they're looking to companies to say, look, if we're going to take care of our people, we're going to take care of our employees, uh, when they send, you know, by raising wages, giving better benefits, uh, you know, when company, when, when Americans see that, they're more willing, um, you know, to give, to give money and support those companies. Well, and it was interesting because that the data that was represented in your study indicated that corporate responsibility, their top corporate responsibility, was really employee benefits and wages and prioritizing profits over fair compensation to employees by a margin, like you said, of 56 to 7 percent. Did you find this to be more of a left-wing perspective? Is it more left-oriented voters who wanted care, better care for employees, or is that sort of a nonpartisan issue? Well, I mean, and that was the revealing point about this survey, which is in this increasingly polarized world where, where people are so divided on so many other issues, this actually taking care of, an empl- of employees, uh, supporting your employees actually had very broad bipartisan appeal. And so that's um, what we were trying to impress on, on the business community with this survey that, look, you're getting pulled on the left, you're getting pulled on the right, you're getting pulled on both sides. Uh, you don't need to do that. Here is a path forward to... Uh, to get high customer satisfaction. Well, all of our corporations could probably do well to study this study very closely. I know I don't want my hard-earned tax dollars going to a cause that I don't believe in. So kudos to Delta and also kudos to you, Brian, for the good work you guys are doing at Plus Communications. This is a very useful study. Find it at TonyPerkins.com. Coming up next, Drag Queen Story Hours are no longer just for libraries now. They're in public schools, just as we anticipated they would be. I have got coming up next the New York Family Research Foundation. Jason McGuire, their executive director, is going to join me to discuss this problematic new development. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships here, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Thursday afternoon. Well, a first grade class at Maurice Sendak Community School, that's a public school in Brooklyn, will host a Drag Queen Story Hour for its students on February 24th. So, for parents who believe Drag Queen Story Hours were just for libraries, let me tell you, the battle is at our door. And as the parent of three minor children who are in public education, this story I find particularly incensing. You're going to hear right now from Executive Director of New Yorker's Family Research Foundation, Jason McGuire, who's going to help me break this story down. Jason, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. So this is a public school, okay, tax dollars, paying for a presentation that a good portion of parents, by my rough estimate, will find upsetting in a school setting, particularly for first graders, because we're talking five- and six-year-olds. Tell me your thoughts about this. Well, we're troubled by it. This isn't the first time we're seeing this kind of thing happening. Uh, this has been happening in libraries and other types of venues around our state and, frankly, around the nation for some time. And even some other public schools are now starting to dip their toes into that transgender water. And so we're beginning to see this happening now. We saw it in public school 118. Uh, we're now seeing it in other schools in Brooklyn. And principals and teachers are jumping on board as they look to advance that LGBTQ agenda. So I've got a question for you. There are people who will say, okay, this is just harmless fun. It's a costumed program for literacy. Do you believe that these drag queen story hours are benign? Well, let's consider what the Drag Queen Story Hour says about its own program. On their website, they say it captures the imagination and play of the gender fluidity of childhood and gives kids glamorous, positive, and unabashedly queer role models. And so the goal of this program is to actually uh, provide these, quote, queer role models for these students. And then the Drag Queen Story Hour goes on to say it helps people to defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world where people can present as they wish. And that's Mm. really what this is all about, is it's about the gender identity issues that we're talking so much about today. Well, and it's highly sexualized. And this is something that I don't think we hear often enough. Drag queen and drags are intensely and designed to be sexual. This is a an art form, we're going to use big air quotes here, that is relegated to nightclubs for adults to bring this into a classroom setting. Bad enough in a public library, even worse in a public classroom setting, automatically presents a problem because you are addressing mores and social appropriateness that parents want to have Those discussions, they want to have them themselves. We do not want our five- and six-year-olds coming home believing that gender is fluid when we know that gender is not gender, social construct, sex, absolutely immutable, biological, non-alterable, regardless of what we would hear those repetitive left-wing tropes say. So I'm going to anticipate a larger trend. Just as Drag Queen Story Hours started as a one-off in San Francisco but morphed into a larger, coordinated national movement, as you said, I find this development particularly frightening. Do we think that this is, as you said, the tip of the spear that we are going now into public schools on a more regular basis? 
I think we, this is, and I think this is an attempt to now begin to go into that area to see what kind of a backlash occurs. And if there is not uh, opposition to that in a strong form, then you will see it in more and more schools across the nation. You know, it's one thing to say this is starting in New York City, but it's another thing to say it's going to start in Iowa or in Ohio or some other place in the country. But mark my words, if it begins to happen here, it will spread across the nation. Okay, so you are your Jane Q. Public who's listening to this program and thinks, I, I can't believe that this is a social phenomenon that could be coming to my school. What is a parent to do when a development like this shows up, understanding that sometimes public education, school administrators can feel like the 800-pound gorilla, and that doesn't even take into account what we see from the left-wing cancel culture, the transgender mob. What's a parent to do? Well, there's a few things they can do. And first is they should not be afraid to speak up. This is an issue in which uh, there is a fear factor involved. If I speak out, what will people think of me or how will they treat my child in that school or in that library situation? Mm. And we have to not be afraid to speak up, but to boldly declare the truth in this issue. And to be frank, we need more people of faith and values of like-mindedness to run for school boards and to run for library boards across this yes. country that when this kind of stuff is happening, they can stand up and say, no, we do not approve of this, and we're not going to allow it at this facility. Oh, so, so encouraging to hear somebody who understands this full well discuss the very intense need to be proactive, because we are parents, we are their stewards, we are their protectors, and we have them for just a short period of time. That means asking all the questions, doing all the homework, reading all the take-home notices, following even the Twitter feeds, which is how this was discovered. So let me tell you, as a mom, I'm encouraged by what you have to say. Thank you for the good work you all do there at the New Yorkers Family Research Foundation. Jason McGuire has been our guest today on Washington Watch. Coming up next, we will get a couple of minutes with South Dakota Representative Fred Deutsch, the sponsor of HB 1057 that we discussed earlier in the show. And then we'll have Matt Carpenter and Travis Weber of FRC Government and Policy to discuss a little bit about pro-life trends and a resource we We've put together to help you navigate them. We'll be right back on Washington Watch. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. 
What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. We all need to be lectured sometimes. Welcome back. It's Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry. I'm sitting in for Tony Perkins on Thursday. Go to TonyPerkins.com. That is the website for today's podcast. You can also find us through all of your podcast platforms. Just look for us wherever you get them. Now, we have the benefit of getting back on the show Representative Fred Deutsch from South Dakota's 4th Congressional District, who is the sponsor of the bill we previously referenced in the show, HB 1057, which just passed by a margin of two to one. So congratulations to you, Representative Deutsch. Thank you. I'm very pleased. Oh, I bet you are. And I know that this was a bit of a labor of love. And I addressed this with our Travis Weber a little bit, because having done some reading on this, you said that the bill itself was sort of homegrown. How did this come about? Well, it actually came about uh, from my introduction on Twitter. I just started using Twitter about April or so of last year and just going through the web I found all these people uh, that have been injured and hurt and regretted their uh, experiences, uh, what they did to themselves. So that was really the very beginning of it. So you've worked on the language for the bill. You've seen passage in the House. It's headed now to the Senate. What, as a legislator, do you feel are the chances of this passing the Senate and moving on to the governor? Well, it's always hard to, you know, predict down the road. Um, but I know there's a lot of support among the legislators. Um, so I'm, I'm comfortable. Uh, legislation always takes twists and turns as it goes through the process. Uh, but overall, I'm, I'm very hopeful we can land it on the governor's desk. Now, you've had, naturally, as any legislative bill would actually take into account, you've, you've had critics. So the gender identity issue is naturally politically combustible, and this is the first bill of its kind. And again, we applaud you for that. But you've taken some heat. Tell me a little bit about how you've answered your detractors about the need for a bill like this. Well, you know, we know children are being hurt in our state. Um one of the uh, health providers testified that some 20 children, 18 to 20 kids, have gone through their facilities in the past year. And that's 18 or 20 too many as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. If there's just one, we need to stop it. Uh, I don't look at this as health care. This is hurting our children, and we, we need to stop it. 
And it seems to fall into precisely the same category as legislation that protects children from child abuse, requires seatbelts, prohibits smoking, and in my mind, in the estimation of those of us here who followed this legislation, and in yours, I'm sure, this has to be akin to a piece of protective legislation along those lines. And so it seems very common sense to us. And we've heard inklings, and according to the press, ACLU has threatened to sue. How likely do you think that possibility is? Oh, I think it's pretty likely. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm I'm just uh, very much wanting to get this to the governor's desk, and then we'll see what happens. I mean, um, I think they're gonna they're not gonna say we're gonna sue you and not sue us. I think that's very likely, and and frankly, we've already gotten um, an answer from uh, Liberty Council that if we get sued, they're gonna support us pro bono, which we're thrilled. Well, uh, so you was, have your council lined up already. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> We're already working on our defense. We haven't even gotten the bill passed. Perfect. So you're ahead of the game. Well, we're trying. <laughs> Representative, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the tremendous work that you're doing as a mother of three kids. I thank you individually, all of whom, P.S., are under the age of 16. So we applaud you for what you're doing. We are anxiously awaiting an affirmation and a vote yes on this in the South Carolina Senate and uh, South you. Dakota Senate. And we'll just wait to see what the governor does. But we pray for you and uh, for this bill. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. And please do pray for us. It's a, a challenging time. We certainly will. Well, I've got back in studio now Travis Weber, FRC's Vice President of Public Policy and Government Affairs, and he is joined by Matt Carpenter, the Assistant Director of State and Local Affairs. Gentlemen, welcome. It's been sort of a wild ride on today's show today. <laughs> so thanks for being with us. We're going to we're gonna shift back to the pro-life issue. We're six days past the annual March for Life, and we're sensing a burgeoning trend. About half a million people showed, out, uh, showed up at the March for Life. So we're sensing a groundswell, and there is a rash of pro-life legislation coast to coast, each state that has come out. So explain a little bit, Travis, and I'll start with you, what it looks like as far as national trending is concerned. Is the volume of state legislation indicative of the fact that the cultural tide has changed? Thanks, Sarah. Well, I'm definitely going to let Matt chime in on this because he tracks a lot of these issues day to day for us. But I think the overall sense is that we are seeing some significant pro-life momentum in the states. Um, you know, there there are there are activist attempts at 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 pushing back against the pro-life momentum, but. Uh, the the introduction and movement of good pro-life bills throughout the states shows a positive, um, I, I think, you know, right now, as you look at what we're currently facing and even last year, positive movement for the pro-life cause. And, and this is perhaps in part driven by um, a renewed hope that with a, uh, a new uh, struct federal court appointment structure, appointment makeup, and uh, new Supreme Court makeup, we're, we're going to see some different results from the traditionally activist courts. But, I mean, Matt is doing great work looking at some key bills that we're pushing and, and some of the st- status of those this week. And so definitely want to hear um, his thoughts on what we're specifically tracking. Yeah, so you mentioned um, a lot of bills that have been moving in the states just this week even. We have seen uh, Kentucky, New Hampshire, and West Virginia consider legislation to um, – 
put in place protections for infants who survive abortion. And Ooh. so you'll remember about this time last year, the governor of my home state, the pediatric neurosurgeon, uh, Governor Northam, made his now infamous comments implying that it would be okay um, in a situation where a child survived an abortion for that child to be uh, basically killed by neglect or, yeah. or other means. And those are just shocking comments. And so um, we basically spent the entirety of last year working on this issue. And so now we've seen just um, we are we are. You know, I should say the pro-life movement is reaping what we've sown there, and we are seeing this 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 idea of putting in place legal protections, um, healthcare requirements and hospitalization requirements, reporting requirements, just a full plethora of really good protections on mm. the born alive issue. So that issue had a had a great week. I'm really proud to say uh, legislators in Kentucky actually passed it 32 yeas to zero nays. Wow, four, four Democrats uh, came out in support of that bill. So just oh, tremendous. I mean, tremendous. Um, West Virginia's bill actually had, um, I think, 35 uh, Democrats in the House supported that bill, and now it's in the in the West Virginia Senate. So we're um, anxiously awaiting for that to make it to the floor, um, and then also in New Hampshire, where I think it's a little bit of, a, of an uphill climb, but yeah. obviously still a good effort there. Well, and again, New Hampshire generally considered to be one of the least restrictive states in the country. A package of four bills, all coming out, including a born alive type protection. It might be hard to get something like that through in in New Hampshire, but it's encouraging for those of us who follow this issue to see that even the blue states, the deep indigo states, are considering in their chambers legislation that protects the unborn. So I want to ask you guys both a little bit about Virginia, because Virginia is sort of the... The icing on the left's cake as far as the abortion issue is concerned. You mentioned Governor Northam's statement last year. Let's talk a little bit about whether or not we're going to see any modification, any movement toward the right direction in Virginia. Because if memory serves, we're actually moving in the opposite direction. Uh, Sarah, I think that that's accurate. And I was just going to ask Matt to to uh, chime in on all the the um, the the bad bills we're having to face and fight yeah. back in Please. Virginia right now. Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. Unfortunately, Virginia is moving in the wrong direction on this issue. Um, just this week, actually, both chambers of the Virginia legislature passed um, legislation, pro-abortion legislation, to repeal um, legislation or a law put in place, I think in 2012, um, to um, provide um, an ultrasound prior to an abortion. And they also are looking at repealing informed consent laws, um, repealing a 24-hour waiting period prior to getting an abortion, Ooh. as well as expanding the list of um, licensed medical professionals who can perform first trimester abortions. So wow. they are really pulling out all the pro-life laws currently on the books in Virginia. Um, it's a difficult time in the Commonwealth of Virginia, my home state, um, for the pro-life movement. And so um, it, elections have consequences, unfortunately. And um, and so this is something I think the pro- other pro-lifers in other states, fortunate enough to have pro-life governors and legislators, um, need to guard those carefully. Travis, as a fellow lawyer, let me ask you, these are obviously vehicles, some stated, some sort of behind the scenes, subliminal, if you would, to set up a row challenge. How likely is it, do you believe, that row will be taken up in the next Supreme Court term, understanding we have so many pro-life bills in operation right now? Yeah, I think we're definitely going to get... Uh 
some abortion cases. We already have one at the Supreme Court right now, G versus June Medical Services out of Louisiana, dealing with that state's uh, clinic regulations, uh, protecting the health and safety of women um, who are seeking abortions. So we're probably going to get some others that are going to deal with the contours of Roe. Uh, we, we, we're going to get some rulings that affect uh, Roe. Um, we, we obviously hope for originalist rulings from the court. We hope to see pro-life laws stand enacted with the will of the people behind them. Uh, and this has been our position that, you know, we, upon which we fought for, for a long time. Uh, ju- the judiciary should not be stepping outside of its role to implement its policy preferences in rulings. It should respect the will of the people. Even if, as a judge, you disagree with the, what the legislature has enacted, uh, you respect it because you recognize you only have to rule in the case before you. So I, I think, you know, I, I have, I'm hopeful that we're going to see more rulings in that vein. I'm hopeful those rulings um, are going to produce a result which chips away at Roe versus Wade. We'll see how far that goes. Matt, do you see a possibility for us as the average American voter to help enhance the culture of life by making sure we elect individuals at the state level who can make sure that they vote for legislation like this. To my mind, it really evidences the need to utilize your civic duty to go out and to vote in every election. Is that what you're seeing as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people are focused on a presidential election for good Mm -hmm. reasons. I think the contrast there is very clear, but uh, it's important to remember that there's other elections down ballot that have a tremendous impact on uh, the unborn. And so uh, in Virginia is unfortunately a great example of that. You know, they have elections every every odd year. So um, Virginians will get a chance in 2021, I believe, to put in place pro-life um, state legislators. But but yes, I do. We, we do need to be aware of where the candidates stand on this issue. And I hope pro-lifers can come out big in 2020 and vote for pro-life candidates. We have just launched a new tool online. We debuted it during ProLifeCon this past Friday. Talk to me a little bit, gentlemen, about what that tool is designed to do and what it demonstrates for our users. So this is our ProLife map. It's available at frc.org slash ProLife map. And we uh, show the status of different types of pro-life laws nationwide. The first map, the set of maps we rolled out last year were on the born alive issue, uh, uh, laws protecting infants who survive abortions, and showing which states uh, perform later term abortions. So people can go to that website, frc.org slash pro-life map, click on their state and see how their state matches, uh, lines up in terms of its born alive protections, how bad it is in terms of late term abortion. The newest tab we just rolled out last week at ProLifeCon on fetal dignity laws. These are laws that protect uh, the dignity of the unborn by providing for proper disposal of their remains, by uh, banning the sale or transfer transfer of fetal tissue for research, uh, providing death certificates for stillborn and miscarried babies, and um, banning public funding for aborted fetal tissue research. Five categories on that map showing how states line up, and and based on the, the level of protections in their different categories, we give states a strong down to uh, uh, weak ratings. So people can go to that map and click on um, their state, see where they line up. We're, we're seeing uh, these fetal dignity laws currently pending in different states. Matt mentioned born alive laws. Uh, so all these laws are currently moving, and we hope states will use this map as a tool to um, incentivize each other to, to continue to pass pro-life laws. Matt, what states are you particularly watching right now? We mentioned New Hampshire just coming out with a package of four bills that were introduced. What are some mm-hmm. other states that seem to be on the cusp of making move? You know, this week, Florida, actually, the Florida Senate is considering Senate Bill 404, which is um, a law that would put on in the on the books in Florida um, a requirement a requirement that um, 
parents give their consent for their minors to, to, to secure an abortion. Um, that's actually a very significant piece of legislation. That's one we're watching very closely. Um, I, we mentioned the born alive issue. Kentucky and West Virginia currently have no protections for born alive infants. Mm-hmm. So their bills actually would have put in place, our, our, according to our measurements, the best protections possible. So um, that is just huge in terms of putting in place those protections, signaling, signaling to other states that have nothing on the books that you can get this done. You can protect the, you can protect, um, you know, vulnerable children who've survived abortions. Um, additionally, we're playing defense in Virginia um, mm-hmm. and, in, and in other states as well. New York, for example, has a bill similar to one in California that passed last year, which basically converts um, student health clinics on public university campuses into chemical abortion facilities, um, mm-hmm. requiring them to dispense chemical abortion drugs. So uh, we're going to be looking at that effort in New York and, and hopefully come to their um, to, to their aid there to help defeat that one. No shortage of things to do on this particular issue. One issue that we watch very closely. This has been Washington Watch. Travis Weber, our VP of Public Policy and Government Affairs, has been my guest, along with Matt Carpenter, Deputy Director of State and Local Affairs. Before we go today, we want to remind you to go to TonyPerkins.com so that you can... Visit our information on getting registered for the trip of a lifetime. If you've ever traveled to Israel, I have been three times, and I cannot recommend it enough. Invite your family and friends to the Holy Land for an incredible nine days, June 2nd through the 12th. For more information, go to TonyPerkins.com. You will want to sign up. Thanks for being with us today. I've been Sarah Perry in for Tony Perkins. We'll see you tomorrow on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.